conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that you can follow Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram at Welcome to Geekdom and on Twitter at Geekdom Pod. There are links to those in the show notes. You can also support the show on Patreon, where I will be releasing bonus content for this podcast and my other podcast, Chat Cemetery. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. There are links to all of those things in the show notes, so be sure to do that. It is a huge help for the show, and I really appreciate it. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined by Shelley Bond, and we are talking all about comics. Shelley, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great as well. I'm taking the week off after we are recording this. So it's busy, but the good kind of busy. Okay, wait, so does that mean you want me to speak quickly and actually just like have a 20 second interview so that you can go on vacation? No, no, no. We have some time here. But I do want to start not quite at the beginning, but start with your time at Vertigo. And you were hired as an assistant editor there? Yeah, that's correct. Way back in December of 1992, long before you were born. That was the month I was born. No way. <laughs> yes. We were destined to speak today before your big vacation. <laughs> yes. I'm so exactly. glad you called. That is amazing. And, you know, Vertigo was around for quite some time. And now DC's done a lot of restructuring since about. 2016, I want to say. And I feel like Vertigo was a huge moment in comics over, you know, that two decade stretch plus, if you will. And for you, what was it like working at Vertigo? Because Vertigo was definitely putting out more mature comics. They put out a lot of horror stuff that I really like. Is horror a particular genre that interests you? Actually, not so much, believe it or not. Okay. I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think Vertigo changed the game in modern comics. And I think Karen Berger's vision really started many years before the official Vertigo launch which was January of 1993. But Karen was a seminal editor at DC Comics for many years before Vertigo. And strangely enough, the books she edited were referred to as the Burger books, which now come full circle. She's editing a line called Burger Books for Dark Horse. Despite the fact that Vertigo no longer exists, I think one of the greatest things about the imprint is that it was full of revolutionary, editorial, artistic, and writer voices that changed the landscape of pop culture, if I can be so bold. I think Vertigo was a celebration of ideas that were off the beaten path. So even though we specialized in horror and dark fantasy, they were always done with a certain panache. And we only worked with the cutting edge provocateurs which I am proud and honored to say I got to work with so many of them and I got to throw red ink at them, which was a lot of fun. I can imagine. What was the biggest lesson you learned as an editor working at Vertigo? The biggest lesson I learned was that if you want to edit comics, 
buckle up. Your job will consume you. It will take over your life. And if you aren't careful, you will not only be working 24-7, but you'll end up marrying your favorite comic book artist and you will never stop making comics. So it's a cautionary tale, but it's one I recommend highly because to this day, comics are in my bones. They make up every atom of my being and there's nothing greater than to wake up every day and to make comics with my husband, Philip Bond, still my favorite artist. We um, actually run a company called offregister.press and we self-publish many different types of personal comics. And I must say that in a few words, it's our comics and design lab because we do everything. We do everything from concept to curation to editing. Philip, of course, does a lot of the drawing and designing, but it's just this incredible, like two person operation, a his and hers comics and design lab. I love that. And before offregister.press started, you were also editing for an IDW imprint called Black Crown. And that didn't last quite as long as Vertigo, unfortunately, but exactly, <laughs> you put out a lot of great stuff there. I believe your site says you put out at least 10 trades while you were there. Yes, that's correct. When I left Vertigo in 2016, I knew I was going to still stay in comics. And it was a question of really just going back to my roots. I got into comics in the late 80s through books like Love and Rockets and Grendel. It was such an exciting time for comics. That was quite a few years before you were born in 92. But great things happened for the indie new wave. There was a big black and white comics boom. There was uh, so much really edgy and irreverent type of material coming out of companies like, believe it or not, Marvel. They had a line called Epic run by Archie Goodwin. And so many of those books defined my future interests in comics. So I was at the right place at the right time. And I didn't just embrace it. I made it my way of life. So I graduated from film school in 1988 and was lucky enough to get hired in the fall of 88 by Diana Schutz, who was in charge of Kamiko, the comic company, which was also one of the very first creator-owned or creator-owned driven comic book companies where we really catered to the visions of our talent rather than just company characters. And that really set me up, I think, for the rest of my edit life. I, I learned pretty much trial by fire how to not only edit the scripts, but also art direct and learn about graphic design, lettering um, at a time when digital was so far into the future, we had no idea how our lives would change and how much easier it would be. Yeah, that's amazing. And sometimes the best way to learn how to do something is to just do it. When I started podcasts, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I wasn't putting out podcasts that were loud enough. And it's been a learning process over the last five years for me since I did my first podcast. And I feel like with comics, it's a lot of the same, especially now because, and this is something I definitely want to dive into more, but there's 
a ton of opportunity for creator-owned comics now that didn't exist in quite the same way before. And I know you've been a huge proponent of Kickstarter campaigns. And that's how I've obtained insider art and heavy rotation. But one thing I've noticed for your work in particular, too, is that you seem to really love the anthology format as well. Can you talk a little about that? I can. I actually think my very first anthology was for Vertigo. It was called Winter's Edge, and it was way back in 95. And that was my first taste of putting an anthology together. And I haven't looked back. I find the anthologies interesting for so many reasons. First of all, I love things that are topical. And I love being able to lure creators, whether writers or artists, from my past. And also, I love to look for new talents. And an anthology is such a great place to bring in people that you love that might not have enough time to actually work with you on a a longer series. So getting someone like Peter Milligan to commit to a short story, let's say, on the human condition, might have more luck getting him to write something short for me if he's busy writing three Marvel books. It's also a wonderful place for you to give a newcomer a chance to cut their teeth and to also see how likely it is for a person to want to work with an editor because the editors have a bad rap. You know, I like to joke around and say editing is about getting red ink and blood on your hands. And it truly is. And not everybody wants an editor's feedback. And to be fair, not every editor knows what they're doing. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but I do consider the red pen my weapon of choice. And when you have an anthology, it's your chance to diversify. You can not only bring in new creators, bring in favorite talents, you can sometimes put those two together. And that was the very genesis and my manifesto for Black Crown was to take established veteran talents and marry them up with either newcomers or people they would never consider working with in a million years. And that's one of the greatest jobs the editor can do. The editor needs to hire the right people and to beat them up until they get the best work out of them because the editor is master control. And I say to people all the time, if you pick up a comic book and you love the cover because it's arresting, you love the logo design because it's inventive, you start reading the comic in the store and by page three, you're actually in line to buy the comic because the art is riveting and there aren't too many word balloons. You can actually read the comic. See my name in the credits because I'm the editor of the book and it's my job to make sure all of those things gel and synergize. However, the same works for the other side. If you're in a comic book store and you're looking for a comic and you can't read the logo because it's too busy or there's too much modeling on it or the counters close up in the lettering, you open up the comic and you don't know where to start. I've had so many friends who were not comics enthusiasts say to me, how do you read comics? You shouldn't have to ask that question. You know, there should be only a certain amount of word balloons and captions on a page. There should be a certain amount of panels. I think we've come to a point in time in comics where people think anything goes. And that to me is the worst kind of chaos. I like organized chaos, 
but I don't like what I've been seeing in comics, which is just too much of everything. And I think that happens when the marketplace is so crowded and there isn't a discerning editor or a discerning reader to actually make those decisions. You know, is this book worthy of my time? Is it worthy of my $3, my $10, my $50? So just to finish up this loop, if a book looks like crap, see my name in the credits because the editor is responsible. And if it's not working for you, I need to fess up when I mess up. I love that. And with offregister.press in particular, you have a variety of projects that you've already put out through there. Heavy rotation isn't this big, massive undertaking in the same way that insider art was, which is, you know, around 270 pages. So for you, is there a specific goal that you have with that to where you're open to projects of all kinds? Are you hoping to focus specifically on one thing? Like I know insider art has a lot of cats in it, for instance, and I'm not a huge cat person, but I love a lot of the art and the stories in there. Hey, I'm with you. You know, truth be told, I am highly allergic to cats. I mean, right? You too? (laughs) Yes. I am. It was funny. And I used to say I took one for the team when we decided to make cats, you know, the main characters in the book. But first of all, thank you so much for supporting my work and for bringing up insider art. I have to say that that was the highlight of my first pandemic year. You know, as we struggle through 2021, I have to give props to every single person who not only bought insider art, either through Gumroad, it's still available. So you can pay what you want, but it's 270 pages chock full of comics, cats and crafts. But I also have to thank the over 150 female and non-binary writers and artists and colorists and letterers and editors. We all came together in March of 2020 right at the beginning of the pandemic, because we all knew it was going to be bad. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. But when the when the comic book companies were shutting down, and when printers were, were stopping their presses, I think it was pretty obvious that there was going to be trouble for quite a while. So it was just a call to action for me. I pretty much reached out to my old one of my old assistants at Vertigo, Mariah Huner, who was also a, a full-blown editor now, and she has been for many years. But to me, she'll always be that wonderful art student that went to SBA, that came in to show me her portfolio, who I hired on the spot to be our intern at Vertigo, and then later a wonderful assistant and then associate and full editor. But Mariah and I were, were chatting about how it was so depressing. We were, we didn't want everything to go full stop in comics because the secret about comics is that they must keep moving forward. They're organic. They need to be watered and fed and they need to be continuous. So there was no way that I was going to stop making comics, pandemic or not, in March 2020. So Mariah and I decided to enlist um, six other editor friends. And I basically came up with the concept that we're stuck indoors, we're inside, So we called it insider art and every editor was assigned a room in a house. So it's basically an art house. It's overrun by cats because I was outnumbered. You know, I'm sure you feel the same way. I'm sure you have plenty of friends and relatives who have cats and all they do, they they just post pictures of cats. Well, we are a pet free household because the three of us are deathly allergic. So I agreed, okay, we'll make it house cats, but 
if I break out in a rash and start complaining, everybody has to commiserate. That was the deal. So we had a great crew. We had editors, Chris Simon. We had Mariah, of course, and a few British editors. We had Sophie Dodgson, who was a colorist and an art director who was an editor. And it was just wonderful. Everybody took 20 to 25 pages and they were assigned to fill those pages with comics, crafts, and cats. And we kept the parameters very loose because we knew we had to ask people to donate their time. We had no money and we knew we were going to do it on Gumroad. But what was really key about this is that we wanted to create a volume of comics that people could enjoy while they were sequestered in their homes. It was all ages. And most important of all, we raised money for female and non-binary comic book retailers. We wanted to make sure it was clear that diversity matters to women in comics and non-binary people. And so we wanted to make our focus on helping out 28 retailers who came forward with our retailer liaison, Jen, um, who is, uh, she's just a a force of nature um, when it comes to rallying the troops of retailers. And so she was, she was very instrumental in reaching out to her contacts. And we had 28 wonderful female non-binary retailers who among them split over $6,500 that we raised thanks to all the readers who either picked up the book through Gumroad or through our Kickstarter. I take it you have the hard copy of Insider Art. Yes. So thank you for that. We were able to kickstart last September and we raised $29,000 and that was done specifically to continue helping the retailers in need. But we also wanted to get comps to all the creatives. And as you know, a book like Insider Art, I mean, it's a, it's so heavy. It's like a weapon. <laughs> you know, it, it serves as a doorstop. You know, one of the things that was important was to get the book into the hands of the people to help create it. And as you know, shipping is outrageous right now. So that money was well spent on getting a copy each to the many talented creatives from all over the world. We had people contribute from Greece and Denmark and South Africa, um, Canada, all over the US. And everybody who worked with us got a book. And that was such a great joy to bring that comic to life. I think it was the first pandemic relief book, if I'm not mistaken. And I hope we still continue to get some press because we didn't get enough and everybody who contributed deserves a thank you. Yeah, it really felt like this huge undertaking, especially given the pandemic times and everything. And, you know, heavy rotation, a bit smaller of a commitment as far as page count and everything like that. Right. But as much love because those were my DJ my rebel DJ fossil friends. It's fair to say. Thank you for for picking up that book as well. Heavy Rotation was just another labor of love. And if I can just add one note to Insider Art, and again, I'm just delighted that you picked it up and I I hope you're enjoying it. It's uh, that to me, I think is one of the single most important initiatives in my career because it showed community. It captured collaboration at a time when the chips were down. And it must be said, that whole thing was put together in under three months. Now, at a normal company like Vertigo, or even a small publisher, it could take three years to wrangle 
or herd the cats, which is a perfect pun for that book. But let's face it, you know, you put that many people together on a book and there's a lot of drama. Well, everybody was committed to getting that book done on deadline and we did it. And so again, that's a celebration of the community of comics. Heavy rotation happened a few months later. Once Insider Art was taken care of and all the comps went out, um, I was called uh, on a conference call with a bunch of my fellow DJ friends from college and many of whom I hadn't talked to in 32 years. So we were on a Zoom call and it was so much fun. No one recognized me because I had black hair and I had silver lipstick. And of course, I looked a tiny, tiny bit younger. Um, but I didn't recognize many of the other people also on the call, you know. So it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs chatting. And as we were talking, it just occurred to me, we never really had an official takeaway from our times as DJs. Ithaca College had one of the best radio stations, and I think they continue to win awards for 92 WICB, the station for innovation. But at the time, it was still very new. We were one of the first stations to really focus on what was called new music, which was essentially goth, new wave, synth pop, anything that was sort of not album-oriented rock, top 40. We, uh, we were very much the musical elitists of our school. And I think that the station itself was special because it was 24-7. We had a station manager. It was like real-time FCC license approved. So what was a real bummer to me was that when we graduated from college, we didn't even get more than a very small section of one page in the yearbook. And that pissed me off. And so as we were all reliving our favorite albums and favorite moments, you know, we all love The Cure, but like who loved Robert Smith the most? She might be on this on this podcast right now. I'm not sure. But I felt like it was important for us to capture the height of our DJ days through comics. And a few of the people on the call, there were about 15 of us on the call, and a few of the people on the call either read comics or knew about comics and everyone seemed game. So that's where it started. And I made everybody accountable to contribute in some way. So not everybody was able to write a short comic story, but everybody contributed something, whether it was photos or whether it was a prose story or an essay. And I pretty much did what I normally do with anthologies. I reached out to some of my favorite contributors. So you have a lot of usual, usual suspects that came along. And also, um, I reached out to some people who I knew were actually DJs. So for instance, Ian Rankin, who is like worldwide best-selling novelist and super cool person. I remember reading somewhere that he was a DJ. So I reached out to him and I thought, hey, why not? And it turns out he was a mixed tape DJ. And he would, because he was a few years older than me, I was shocked that anyone was older than me. but. In his generation, which was a few years older, they didn't have radio DJs. He actually had a lug stereo equipment from party to party and actually has to, had to figure out a way to like DJ with mixed tapes. And I thought that was fascinating. So he actually contributed a wonderful story. And I actually had other people just, you know, through word of mouth, um, some of my DJ friends knew people who interviewed bands and um, my roommate, Barbara 
who gets the credit of having the patience to teach me how to DJ. She and I actually reached out to a band called APB, which was a Scottish band who performed at our at a nightclub in our small town of Ithaca. They were on tour in, I think, 86, and we got to see them. And we were able to track down the drummer and interview him for a special feature. So it was definitely a love letter to not only college radio, but the 80s and to being a DJ. And we still have copies of it available at offregister.press. And wow, what an experience to not only be an editor and curate heavy rotation, but I also it gave me an excuse to also design. And I am just a frustrated graphic designer and art director at heart. So I've really got a chance to get my hands on those pages and, and uh, salute the 80s and my friends. As a music industry major, this was one I was like, oh, this is my interest colliding. Because while I was not a DJ at my college radio station, I did like take I think almost all of the tests that they made you take to become a DJ. And then I just, I moved off campus and it was like a mile walk. And I was like, it's Philly. I'm not walking a mile to go to the radio station. (laughs) Oh, wait a second. You just said two words that like make my eyes light up. Um, Music industry major, how fascinating, do tell. And Philly is my turf. So please, I must interject and throw a few questions back at you. Please elaborate. I had interned at a recording studio in high school. I was required to do an internship and a lot of people were like going to Boeing and going to all these like big fancy tech places. And I was like, I don't want to do any of that. So someone my dad knew had a studio that he would go to after his day job and on the weekend. So it aligned perfectly with my school schedule. And I didn't want to work in a recording studio, but that was kind of when it clicked with me that I wanted to learn more about the music business. And Drexel University has a music industry program. I went and visited a few schools, but Philly was where I landed. And nice. ironically, I don't really do anything in the music business now, but I I work on podcasts now. That's my job. And I ended up working with a bunch of music people (laughs) who have podcasts. So it kind of worked out for me that way. And yeah, it was a very interesting experience. Like I would be on the plane at the time. I lived in Southern California. So I would, you know, be on the plane from Philly back to Southern California. And people were like, oh, you go to Drexel. Do you major in engineering? I was like, not quite. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I find it fascinating that there would be a, a major called music industry. We have a lot in common. I'm living in SoCal out now, melting, by the way, not a, not a fan of the sun, miss my East Coast. But when I went to college from 84 to 88, I was fascinated that there was a film and video production degree. And it also had an audio production emphasis. So to me, I thought, wow, I can go to college and I can like actually make things like that was fascinating. I I felt so lucky to stumble onto that at school. How did you find out about the music industry major? Basically, I was just, you know, Googling at the time. And I would apply to the schools that had as close to a program as I wanted, like 
I applied to USC. It was the only school I didn't get into, but theirs was more, you had to like audition with an instrument. And I was like, that's not what I'm looking for. I cannot play an instrument well enough to audition. (laughs) I wanted something that was more focused on the business. And at Drexel, at the time I was accepted, they had three different tracks you could take. You could take a pre-law track, essentially, specifically for like entertainment Entertainment. law music business yeah Yeah. that went away I think after my freshman year so then it was just business and production tracks left and having interned at a studio I already knew I didn't really want to do the production thing which is funny because now I edit podcasts all day so I ended up in the production thing anyway hey that's life for you I always say to people just go after your interests you know eventually things will merge you know like you were saying about music and comics I mean that was the backbone of Black Crown was merging music and comics. And that's why I got into comics. Love and Rockets was a book that defined me and continues to define me. And, you know, for reasons of epic cool, you know, just, I always say to people like, be you and live life the way you want on your own terms, the way you want to live it. Cause it's too short. We really have no idea. Like, when our time is up. So I love the fact that you kind of just went for it. And then things just keep coming back into your life, all the things that you studied, right? They just merge. Yeah, they really do. And I think to bring it back to comics a little here with Kickstarter, it's offering such a great opportunity for, like you said, these more collaborative projects, because with you as an editor, you know, a lot of the Kickstarter campaigns that I see are really being driven by either writers or artists. So yours caught my eye because you were the editor and you were bringing all of these people together and you have filth and grammar in progress right now, which I know there's like paper shortages and all sorts of wild (laughs) things going on because I know someone who does like a monthly book box, they keep getting delays. And they're like, we're so sorry, this package isn't going out this week because of all these things happening. And I imagine it's the same for comics too, even though, you know, book paper and comic book paper, slightly different textures there. But exactly, have you been running into some delays with that? Or are you still in the getting it all together phase? Well, I'm still in the getting it all together phase. But I will be moving into that next phase. And yes, um, to talk about Kickstarter for a minute, wow, the best time to make comics for me is right now. But that's a stock answer that I've given throughout my whole life. But right now, it's the best for self-publishers because platforms like Kickstarter, and there are others, platforms like crowdfunding, platforms for crowdfunding, are the kings and queens of the comics frontier because doing it yourself ensures that you're getting it done the way you see it and and it's completing your vision and there's nothing more exhilarating than to go from a spark of an idea to that finished book in your hands and knowing that you can check it every step of the way so for me it's most gratifying and Yeah, I just, I love Kickstarter. I've done five projects of varying lengths. You've mentioned many of them. It started with Femme Magnifique, which I kickstarted back in 2016. And it was a celebration of 50 women in 
pop, politics, art, and science. And that was another foray into the anthology format. I pretty much asked um, 50 writers to salute their, their female icons. It was, uh, it, it precipitated uh, around about the time that the uh, 2016 election results came in. And it was such a missed opportunity for women, to put it lightly. And so that book pretty much celebrated just women in history and today. But for what I do now with Kickstarter, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm lucky because I do work so well with my husband. And through Black Crown, we pretty much learned the ropes. I mean, I started lettering comics because I had to. Black Crown still remains the closest thing that I can called Utopia in comics because we were able to work with Chris Ryle, who was a wonderful boss, and work on these wonderful comics that celebrated music and comics. We built a world which essentially was our own street, our own St. Mark's Place. All of the comics and all the characters interacted. And we were able to do that for a time, you know, when we had, when the books didn't sell as well as we hoped, we had to cut budgets. When it came to cutting our wonderful letterer, Aditya Bidikar. I knew that I had to start lettering myself because there just wasn't enough time for the back and forth. So what I recommend to people who want to make their own comics or who want to edit comics, get your hands dirty. Find out how to do every single part of the process. Now, trust me, I didn't go to school to learn how to draw because I could draw shapes and stick figures. But it's critical when you're an editor to know the parlance. People will not respect you unless you learn how to speak their language. So what I'm doing with Filth and Grammar, it's basically, it's called Filth and Grammar, the comic book editor's secret handbook, because I wanted to create the handbook that I didn't have when I was editing comics through the 80s and the 90s. I mean, all throughout, there was never a resource for editors. And I think that Filth and Grammar is actually the first primer the first how to make comics from the editor's point of view. And it's about time. I feel like writers and artists sometimes don't know what their editor is supposed to do. That's because there really isn't a guidebook. And that's because, you know, editing to some people is paper pushing. Editing to some people is, is in a, if you're in a big company, unless you have a boss who says, oh my God, editing means putting your thumbprint on every part of the process. Sometimes people don't know what to do, so they don't do anything or they just chase a paycheck or they don't know how to art direct. And every editor has to have a strong visual acuity. If you open up a comic and you're honestly not sure why all these characters look alike or why they all talk alike, you know, with an, a, an elderly gentleman is gonna have a different cadence than a street punk, that's editing. Editing is when you find a writer who you think is brilliant and you wanna, you want to have that writer write for you, you, you show that, that writer how different it is from writing a novel, how different it is to write a comic from writing a screenplay. Same thing with drawing. You know, you can have people who are wonderful at capturing the human body. They're great at anatomy, but they don't understand perspective. They don't know a vanishing point from a horizon line. All of these things are good to know and critical to know if you want to be a great editor. And part of Filthy Grammar is me going back to the wonderful writers and artists of my formative years when I was an editorial ingenue at 
Kamiko and Vertigo. And I go back to them and I say, hey, you know, can you share your pro tip? Because so many artists like Matt Wagner, Peter Gross, Duncan Fogredo, they were so kind to me because I was the budding ed- editor who sometimes didn't understand why a certain story decision was made or certain extreme close-up was chosen to be drawn on the page rather than a long shot. And I learned by being on the job and asking questions. And I try to capture all those things in filth and grammar. And it must be said, I couldn't do this book at all. Of course, with some of my my friends and colleagues in comics who come in and give me pro tips. I've got 12 of the, the coolest people on earth who let me dig da- dig back into their brains again. But my art trio is so critical. So if it's okay, I want to kind of talk about them just for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you're doing this because real quick, I'm taking Scott Snyder's class through his Substack right now. And for me, it's kind of more about me just learning all the different ins and outs of how comics are made in hopes of, you know, having more entertaining conversations and more informed conversations on this podcast. So for me, it's not necessarily because I want to do all of those things. Not saying I wouldn't love to write a comic at some point, but sure. I think just learning about that stuff, even as a fan of the medium, really helps you understand what exactly goes into it. But yes, please continue. Well, I think that part of the fun of comics is becoming a more discerning reader and a more enlightened reader. You have people who read superhero comics and they go see the movies and that's what they love. And I say, have at it, do your thing. I think that's great. But I'm in comics for completely different reasons. I'm in comics to tell the kinds of stories that I want to live. I'm in comics to create means of escape for people who might be fed up with their own worlds or frustrated by a situation. I mean, whether it's a political situation, whether it's unfairness, you know, we're we're living in times right now where anything goes on social media. Everyone thinks they're comedians and writers. I feel like there's this constant vying for attention through sarcasm and through what I think sometimes is bad humor. So, you know, there's tasteless, nasty commentary all over the world on TV, on social media platforms. I want to write about things that inspire me. I want to be empowered. So that's what I do with the books I create. And filth and grammar has been something I've been working on for a while. It started out as a memoir. And as I was writing it, you know, I realized that rather than just do some kind of warped tell-all, I really wanted to create a book where I can plant my flag and say, look, I edit comics. It's in my DNA, whether I work for a large company, a small company, or work for myself through offregister.press. This is what I'm all about. You know, the comics with my imprimatur on them stand for my basic ideal with what I believe in. And my edict on life is just be fucking fearless and do your thing. You know, it's it's about art. It's about design. It's about graphic panache. It's about my love for the British, you know, whether it's Britpop music or the French New Wave films. And all of those things make me who I am. And I wanted to create a book that not only detailed my personal editing method and madness, 
I have very specific ways how I edit a script and I go through those things step by step. They are not for everyone. They are not for the faint hearted. I have writer, I have a writer in particular who calls me Labond because I'm not a light lunch in his words. When I edit his work, it's a bloodbath. Sometimes he likes it. Sometimes he does not. So, you know, everybody has their own particular editing style. And my style is to throw as much ink at a writer or an artist, a colorist or a letterer as necessary to elevate the art form. And sometimes that means I'll work with someone once and then I won't work, work with them again. And that's absolutely fine. That's why there are different types of editors. But I think what's critical is that editing comics has not been clearly defined, maybe ever. And hopefully I'm going to debunk some rumors because absolutely there are editors who are crap in every medium. There are people who are paper pushers. There are editors who just want to be writers so badly. And so instead of editing your prose, they rewrite it. They put their own down. That is, to me, appalling. And it should be immoral. At the very least, it's unethical, in my opinion. So what I say to people who who have backed Filth and Grammar, who might pick it up eventually, it's a book about making comics. It's the way that I make comics. I'm one editor in a sea of editors. This is how I do it. And I learned it by trial and error. I learned it by listening, having patience, asking questions, making mistakes, and just trusting my gut. Because if there's one thing I know, it's what I like and what I don't like. And throughout the book, I often cite Milton Glaser, who is one of my favorite designers of all time. And he has three responses to a comic book cover. And I use this in my life. And the three responses are yes, no, or wow. You got to have a wow, or it's not worth it. If you want to write comics, make sure you're writing a story that should be told. And that means something original. You know, I feel like right now, especially, there's this overload of mediocre ideas, of arch ideas, of things that have been done to death. If you're going to write something, come at it at a unique vantage point. Bring in people to draw it from different disciplines or from different parts of the world. You know, we've seen enough middle-aged white men writing comic book characters full stop. Let's start to hone the skills of people from other locations with other interests and other backgrounds. And I'm going to just circle back to Filth and Grammar to my art team because I think I've picked the perfect trio of talents. And the best thing of all is that they're all a lot younger than me. People have asked me, why, why didn't I hire one, one of my old bosses to edit my comic book? And I thought, oh my God, that would be the biggest nightmare for myself and for any of my old bosses. I would, that would be their comic book to edit. I chose three young, incredible artists to work with me because I wanted to learn something new myself. You know, I can come in and say, okay, Shelley then from the early 90s might have done this on paper with a red pen or a blue pencil or with an artboard. But I also think it's important to explain how things have evolved and why we do some things the way we do them now. And although I, I am 
in support of computers and digital comics and the way we live now. I do think it's important that if you're going to work in print, that you always have that tactile paper, marker, pen, blue pencil, paint set within reach, because I think that it's important to actually check a book on the screen by holding a dummy book in your hands. So many mistakes are made in today's digital age by people who think they're looking at it on the screen and it's going to be fine in print. And sadly, that's not the case. I I got a review copy of uh, a new graphic novel that was fantastic, and I gave it a glowing review. A young, up-and-coming cartoonist, when the book came out in print, you couldn't read it. And it was horrifying to me, but I blamed the editor because the editor should have been proofreading the book, not on the screen, but in print first, because so often you're, you're zooming in, you know, and you have that ability. If you want to read digitally, go for it, you know, swipe, scroll. But if you're going to read it as a periodical or as a graphic novel in paper form, for the love of God, editors, please print the work and proofread it with a red pen and an index card. You'll catch more errors, sound it out. I go over things like this in the book and it's just, it, again, it's what works for me. But when I see certain errors occurring digitally, I stick to my guns and I stick to what works for me. And so you're going to see old school and you're going to see new school. And hopefully you're going to be able to pull at least one or two things out of filth and grammar that you can take with you in, into whatever you do. And I think it's great you know, for podcasting, like you said, learn more about the inner mechanics of comic book editing. Um, each of the sections of Filth and Grammar focuses on a different stage of the comic. It's 160 pages. It could be 3,000 pages. So for me, as you can tell, I'm chatty. It's knowing when to call a page a finished page. That's the trick about editing. How much is too, too much and how much is not eno- enough? Because I also believe in three important words And this will tell you everything you need to know about pitching to me. I'm not accepting submissions now, but one thing I refuse to accept is anything that's ordinary. So don't be dull. That's my best advice. I refuse to put my name on something that doesn't somehow innovate or isn't exuberant. That's amazing. And if that was 3,000 pages, I would happily read all 3,000 pages. I'm someone who also hosts a Stephen King podcast. So reading is a yes. thing I am willing to do. <laughs> I noticed that about you. What, would you hold it against me if I told you my favorite Stephen King book is Thinner? I wouldn't because at least you didn't say Tommyknockers. No. And I have to tell you, I read Thinner in 1987 when I was lost in Portugal. And it scared the hell out of me because I met a gypsy. And I will not go into it any further. But that's my favorite Stephen King book and I'm sticking to it. That's not a curse you want. That's all we will say about that. (laughs) But Shelly, one last question before we wrap things up here. I love doing recommendations at the end. So is there something you've read recently that you would love for everyone to know about and check out? The greatest comics I've read over the past six months have to be Bezamina. And it's put out by Fanographics. I'm going to butcher the artist's name and I apologize, but it blew my tiny mind. And also Maids by Katie Skelly. I just 
love her work. And Maids is a comic book adaptation of the French film, which was phenomenal. So I can't recommend those books any higher. Two badass women in comics, seek them out. I hope you don't mind. I didn't get to mention my artistic trio by name, so I'd like to just give shout outs to Sophie Dodgson, who is designing the comic. While I'm lettering the short stories in the book, Sophie is a champion colorist. She deserves awards for what she's colored in comics. She did the past two years on Bitterroot, which is a series I was fortunate enough to edit. And Sophie is amazing. She's British and she's joined by Laura Hole, who is also a wonderful British cartoonist. And she's doing spot illustrations in Filth and Grammar. She is someone who I can say has brought such organic flair to the to Filth and Grammar. And last but surely not least is Imogen Mangle, who is the next big sequential art star. Imogen is 22. She's right out of art school. She's also a cartoonist in her own right. And basically, when I saw her art, I realized that now was the time to put out Filth and Grammar because Imogen gets the task of illustrating what starts off each of the eight chapters, which is a day in the life of the comic book editing ingenue. So she gets to illustrate the short stories about my life in the 90s, um, different aspects of being a comic book editor, some ridiculous, of course, some infuriating, but Imogen is a powerhouse and her artwork will change your life. I th- I'm absolutely convinced that she will be the next sensation. So please look out for her in your travels and maybe even ask her onto a podcast because she is wise beyond her years and we have gotten on like a house on fire and there would be no one better equipped to illustrate my life in comics than Imogen Mangle. Perfect. And I'm just going to recommend that everyone goes and checks out Insider Art. There will be a link to The Gumroad in the show notes. And Shelly, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was amazing and I loved getting to chat with you. Thank you so much, Deanna. And maybe we'll meet sometime for a cocktail in Philly. I'll try to get back there eventually. (laughs) 